you need to go into it and saying, this is how long I can go without getting paid, or this is how much personal money I can put into it and draw that line. You could find yourself in a personal hole that you can't get out of. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Guy Soraki, a congressional candidate, former CEO of the Chester County Chamber of Business and Industry. And you've been working in government politics since, what, the 90s? In one form or another, basically most of my adult life, uh, my first role in government was 1987. I worked actually in Chester County for the county commissioners at that point uh, as sort of a we call it a side hustle or a side gig, uh, before I went to law school at Villanova. So that was my first real experience to see the government side rather than the campaigning side. It was very interesting to see how government worked or didn't work and learn how the agencies all interacted. Good. So <clears throat> how, do you, how do you like to describe yourself now? You're kind of transitioning. What's your description of who you are and what you're doing right now? Hmm. So as a candidate for Congress, uh, you know, you're a whole bunch of things at the same time. So, you know, the goal is to win the election. But in essence, you're running a startup business, you know, and, and the mission is much easier uh, rather than something like being successful. It is, you know, on election day, I want to get m one more vote than my opponent. Um, and so it, to do that, you're several things. You're doing a startup business because you have to hire people and, and hire consultants. Um, you're a salesperson because you're trying to raise money. And then you're doing retail in that you're doing that sort of, you know, B2C where I'm going out every day and interacting with people. And for me, uh, you know, this was not on my bucket list. I've been around politics a lot, but I thought I had reached a point in my career where I enjoyed being the CEO of the chamber, uh, able to help businesses and still have an impact on policy and write, you know, guest columns and appear on the radio occasionally. But the last two years really changed things for me. And I, and I just saw so many businesses struggling. And uh, when I'm not at the chamber, I'm, you know, I'm a softball coach uh, for girls little league and really saw that part of it as well, where the, the kids were really not adapting well to the last two years. So in short, I say to folks, you know, I, I took my skills to do this because I felt as though so many different things were spinning out of control, and not that I have all the answers, but I felt I was called, you know, to step away from the chamber and try and jump into the policy arena again. So you mentioned the last two years. Um, can you just expand on that a little bit? I mean, I assume you're talking about COVID. What kind of things were you seeing that motivated you to jump into politics? Yeah. So to give you a snapshot, so I was CEO for almost eight years, and from Almost my entire tenure, Chester County's economy had been the strongest economy in the state and one of the strongest in the nation. We have a tradition to get together with our board and elected officials of all parties uh, in sort of an off-the-record dinner. It's not a fundraiser. We just get together, break bread, and spend three hours talking. We gathered at the end of February 2020. And actually, don't get nervous. I'm not going to walk through every day between 2020 and now. But we got together that night. And we decided the number one issue in Chester County was that the economy was growing too fast. It was too hot. It was where would we find the people? Where are these people going to live? Um, how would we deal with the shortages in so many technical and industrial because people were looking at bio and pharma and engineering? Where were we going to get the people to work at 
um, different places. So we left that night. The unemployment rate's 2.9%, and we, all of us smart people, say the economy's too hot, too fast. What are we going to do to work, find workforce? Two weeks later, uh, we shut down two weeks to flatten the curve. Two weeks later, my chamber, as we would say in the business world, began its first repositioning or first pivot. And that was we went dark. We told our members to go home. We sent our businesses home. We told uh, folks that it was our duty to do our best. And basically, everybody used vacation time and just stood around because we had never experienced this. We then realized it was going to go on longer, and we had to start sharing health information. Then we started to tell people where to get PPE material, where to get gloves, where to get a sanitizer, because some folks were open or had to stay open or were trying to stay open. And and as I said, I'm not going to walk through the whole path, but um, when we all suddenly realized that it wasn't going to be two weeks to flatten the curve, that it was going to be much, much longer, you could begin to see the financial and emotional toll it was taking on people. So we began doing Zoom calls. I'd never, I'd done one Zoom call before then, but we started doing regular Zoom calls. And what rocked me was, first of all, to learn how diverse the economy was. Now, that sounds silly. But what I mean by that is you realize that there are not just major employers like Vanguard or things like banks, but there are hundreds of people doing all sorts of things. They're doing video broadcasting. They're running comic book stores. They're barber shops. And those folks stopped working. And what shocked me and really rocked me was that these folks started crying on phone calls. So we're on Zoom with 30, 40 businesses. And what I was doing were businesses to try and offer help. I realized they soon became therapy sessions. And these folks needed to unburden themselves. And they were crying. They felt helpless. They felt lost. That bothered me. By May, the unemployment rate's 13, uh, from 2.9 to 13 in whole sectors, particularly hospitality. By by the summer, we all started to learn that not all 50 states were treating it the same way, and some states were trying to get back to normal faster than others. Some places were trying to get kids back to school. And the long and the short of it was my experience in the chamber, I began to see that people were genuinely struggling. Some were falling in a hole they wasn't sure they were going to get out of. And at the same time, some of the kids were falling behind. And then we all had the summer of 2020 where in a lot of places uh, – you know, with, with George Floyd in the aftermath, you had the, you know, the cities were bursting into flames, literally. And in short, it was, when I said the, the world felt like it was spinning out of control for people running small businesses, for parents with kids, people living in cities. So by 2021, I began to get this pull at me saying, I, I've got to do more because my days were becoming largely spent giving part financial advice and part sort of psychology and emotional advice. And I felt as what was happening policy-wise was just making things worse. We spent the first $2 trillion to help people. Then we were going to spend another trillion, then another trillion. You know, and I said, you didn't have to go to Wharton to understand that at some point all of this money was going to begin to cause inflation. So it wasn't an epiphany. It wasn't a shocking moment where I woke up one morning. For me, it was an evolution. The last two years really rocked me. I saw what happened to small business, saw what was happening to kids. Uh, saw what was happening in terms of law enforcement and just felt as though we needed to get in because the policies, I felt, were just pulling us further and further in the wrong direction and that I wanted to step in and do this. Uh, Again, like I said, I've been around 
Uh, but this was not on my bucket list, and I really thought my role was to be at the chamber and to help businesses, but I decided I had to jump in the arena. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so just to jump back and kind of trace through some of the history, what did you originally go for? Go to school for? Uh, I uh, attended St. Joe's University, got a degree in international relations, uh, and got then went on to law school um, with an idea of being a prosecutor. When I graduated law school, I was a prosecutor. I worked in the Attorney General's Office of Pennsylvania, and I did uh, what we you know you, you would call criminal appeals which was basically cases that at the trial level, the government had won and found some, someone was found guilty and that person was appealing for whatever reason. They felt as though uh, their rights were challenged or the trial was unfair or there was a problem with the evidence or what have you. So I did that for a while and I really enjoyed it because that's what I wanted. I really wanted to do. I had made that decision uh, that that was my calling. And then entirely you know, for sort of practical reasons, the practical being I lived in South Philly my office was in Harrisburg, across the street from the Capitol, and eventually the math didn't work uh, of traveling every day from South Philly. And my home was there. My wife was there. Her career was in Center City, Philadelphia. <clears throat> we weren't going to relocate there. Um, I came back to Philly, got a little bit, you know, I came back, you know, work-wise because I was living there, but I uh, got involved a bit in politics, <clears throat> did a storefront <clears throat> did a storefront practice of law. Um, and that was more, I found I was being more of a community asset in that. <clears throat> Sorry. It was more of that people were coming to me and asking advice. It wasn't a traditional legal practice where people would come in and say, you know, I want you to draft a contract or I want to buy a business. Or I want to. It was people would come in and say, my neighbors are being mean to me. They play music too loud. Could you write them a letter? So I, again, I sort of found myself in that counselor role, and I would say to my wife, "I don't really feel like I'm practicing law. I feel like I'm, you know, like the neighborhood ward leader or something." So uh, again, you know, divine intervention at the very moment that I was sort of growing frustrated with that, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Harrisburg. I was asked to be chief of staff to a state senator, uh, a woman I had met once or twice but didn't know well, but she had been elected to the state Senate from suburban Pittsburgh, Western Pennsylvania. And um, so that door opened and uh, I got my next taste of real life government in 1994, working in the Pennsylvania Senate. So that was my opportunity to see up close and personal uh, how the legislative process worked and how lobbying worked and how you, the government, the legislature in interacted with the governor and the governor with the legislature. And I was also there at a time where I got to see transition because I was there for the end of Governor Casey's term, and then it became Governor Ridge. So that was a wonderful experience where I got to learn a whole bunch about legislation, lobbying, advocacy, how agencies worked and didn't work, transition of power from Democrats to Republicans. And it was a great firsthand experience. I really enjoyed it. And um, <clears throat> You know, sometimes these these opportunities just present themselves to you. So you're there, you're working in the Senate, and then how did you transition from that into the Chamber of Commerce <clears throat> position? So a lot happened in between, but immediately before that, uh, so I joined the Chamber in January of 14. And prior to that, I was Chief of Staff to Jim Cauley, who was Lieutenant Governor at the time. Jim and I are friends for years and years, uh, as, as we sort of say, uh, you know, two funerals and uh, two weddings, and uh, I guess now it's four or five funerals together. Uh, 
you know, he buried his parents. I buried my dad. Uh, we're just friends, and we knew each other through government and politics, but he asked me for that great opportunity. Jim's known my wife as long as he's known me, so he really asked both of us if, if I could be chief of staff. Um, that was a great opportunity because I had a chance to work with my friend. I mean, somebody I had known since since the late 80s, and here he was. He had become lieutenant governor. Um, <clears throat> the chamber came calling. Um there were other candidates uh, seeking the position, but but members of the board came to me and said, "Look, it's the Chester County Chamber. It's chamber. It's region wide. It's an opportunity to help businesses grow, but also to advance policy. And we think you have the right mix of Chester County roots, because we, we now had moved there since '95, um, a little bit of government and a little bit of business background, because I had been in the private sector as well, and it all made sense. And so that was really again." The opportunity presented itself, and I traded in my hour and 40-minute commute each way to Harrisburg for 10 minutes from Paoli to uh, the chamber building down on Paoli Pike, and it was a wonderful opportunity. I always say to do it, 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 it was part of giving back. And then for me personally, it was like trying to. It was like getting a, a master. It was like getting an MBA and a master's in in sociology. I was learning how businesses worked, how people worked, how people interacted, how businesses from startup and in our community you go from Vanguard to QVC to you know small businesses like yours, every shape and size. It was a wonderful opportunity and thoroughly enjoyed it. And but for but for COVID and you know lockdowns and what have you, I, I might still be there. So when you um, came in as CEO of the chamber, was there a lot of development you wanted to put into the chamber as a business itself, or was it kind of just steer the ship and keep things on course? Um, a little bit of both. So in the beginning, um, I sort of adhered to the, the model, which is, uh, one, go back and think and look at when they issued their job description, what did the board tell you they wanted? And so I did a lot of thought and reflection on going back and actually reading what they had put together, what their prospectus was. And then my thought was to approach the first three to six months with eyes and ears wide open. Let me see how the staff interacts. Let me see what the members want. Let me hear. Um, and then use that summer of 2014 to then begin to say, okay, what should we do? So... I would say that I approached it with a mix of three things. One is being mindful with the board, my bosses, if you will, what they wanted, and then my observing and then saying, okay, now how do I merge that all together? How do I take my lifetime of experience, have, having worked in government and also been an advocate for a number of issues, particularly on education, and then how do I take what I heard from the members those first six months and what should the vision be? Um, and And it was... Again, sort of very, very fun, very rewarding, very intellectually challenging because you're trying to decide. Um, and this is all against the backdrop of uh, organizations are beginning to change uh, and what, what are really membership organizations all about because we've had just in our you know, recent past so many more demands on time. You know, what a chamber of commerce looked like 20 years ago is very different from today. Um, People don't want to go to organizational meetings. You don't have like a monthly membership meeting. It's it's event-focused. But there's also an element of teaching and imparting wisdom. But you're trying to convey wisdom in an era where people can find podcasts or TED Talks. So 
there had to be a human element. So, uh, look, I had a job to do, and I had to pre- present uh, ROI for members, and I had to balance the budget. But intellectually, it was always fascinating because it was a challenge because you were trying to figure out this sort of Rubik's Cube of how much, you know, what did you provide, you know, the old the old idea of what are you providing that no one else does and what can you do well and do that against the backdrop of nine other chambers, do it against the backdrop of Westchester University, uh, community colleges, and, you know, podcast TED Talks and YouTube. You know, what information could we share that you couldn't get elsewhere? What networking experience could we share you couldn't get elsewhere? We tended to focus on policy because that was our brand. That was, you know, how are we different than the Westchester Chamber? How are we different than the Phoenixville Chamber? The one thing that came through was that we had a focus on policy. So I knew that that had to remain at the core because you could go to an after hours and meet people at a bar uh, or meet people at a catering hall or meet people at a picnic grove with any chamber. What were we offering? We were offering the idea that there'd be a policy focus. You could meet elected officials. And then ours was a larger footprint. You had people uh, from the, all of Chester County and the Delaware Valley. Um, and we were in the midst of one of those uh, when you know everything sort of went sideways in 2020. We were in the midst of that a restructuring membership dues, restructuring mem- membership ben- benefits. And then we went to a period for a year and a half where almost nobody paid dues if they weren't sort of a bank or, or Vanguard or QVC. Uh, and that was a whole brand new model uh, that we were in the midst of trying to figure out like many other membership organizations because if if you're not offering – if people can't pay membership dues um, but they need a PPP loan, you don't hang up on them, right? If somebody's going broke, you don't say, I'm sorry, you're not a member, right? You have to be sort of you know cruel right. to do that. So um, – they're in the midst of that now. They're in the midst of another phase where the, this new group of leadership will try and determine in a, in a post-COVID era what a membership organization will be because one of the things Chambers offers are live interaction, but we've come out of two years of Zoom calls, and some people are burnt out of them, but others say, but I like sitting in my den. It's don't, don't make me get out of my den. And and so all Chambers and, – and look, all trade groups uh, – the realtors, the you know, uh, whatever it might be, the builders, those folks are all going to try and figure out what it looks like, and it'll be fascinating. So real quick, can you describe the business model of a chamber organization? Like how does that differ from your typical product or service-based business? And is the CCBI, is that a nonprofit? Sure. So there's actually a provision in the tax code. We're a 503 – I'm sorry – 501c6. So people are used to a 501c3. That's, you know, the United Way, the Salvation Army. There's a provision of the tax code for business trade associations, and that's what we were, which in layman's terms means that it's not a charitable deduction, but it's a business expense. And then during our tenure, the tax code was tweaked twice as to what is a business expense. So first and foremost, um, you know, based upon the directive of the directive uh, and the direction of the executive board, you know, we we wanted to not lose money in a given year, and and have operational money. And again, that business model went out the window because we typically wanted to make sure that we, you know, we would sort of gallows humor. But sitting in a sitting in an executive board meeting, whenever we crafted a budget, 
people used to say, well, we want to have three to six months cash. And you would say sarcastic things like, you know, or like if a meteor struck or there was a flood. Little did we know that we would need not three to six months cash, but we would need 15 months cash. Um, So the business model, uh, you know, to some extent, like any nonprofit, is really guided by what does the board want you to have for cash reserve? And that's a balance because if you're you know, if you're squirreling away $20 million, members will say, why am I paying dues if you have $20 million? But you certainly have to have enough to have a cushion for recessions and normal business cycles. Um, three, generally, three silos of money, three funnels of money. People pay dues. People come to co- events. And then there's corporate sponsorships. And the corporate sponsorships, uh, you, you sort of offer everything from your logo can be in an event to you get a chance to speak at the event uh, or a combination of both. So you get say, you know, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're here on behalf of Edge of Cinema, blah, 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 blah. Or your logo's there. Um, or you have some some tchotchke, you know, you're, you're handing out, you know, mouse pads. I don't think anybody does that anymore. But, you know, you're handing out mouse pads or, or whatever it may be. So those are the three silos of money. Every chamber, uh, every chamber Every business trade organization basically does those. Your balance may change, whether you're more dues-based or more sponsorship-based or more event-based. For us with events, for major events like our annual uh, dinner at Longwood Garden, right, that's 500 people. So that you charge a lot of money because the event itself costs $100,000. You have to charge money to make it work. But for the sort of the learning and the training – we would try to charge less money for that because, in our opinion, it was better for us for small businesses to come and learn about marketing or resume building or, you know, for a lot of businesses that start in somebody's home, there's a question of when I, when am I ready to hire my first employee and how do I go about that? So to teach those things, it's better for all of us if you learn how to do it. So to charge somebody $100 – to help their small business get a first employee doesn't make sense. But so you charge, you know, $20. So that's really the business model. And the challenge is, as in any other business, is what are fair for dues, how much for events, and then how much for sponsorships that as an organization you're not losing money. You're paying, you're asking someone to contribute enough in dues so that they feel invested, but you're not charging so much that it's a barrier. And you know, that's one of those we could debate that for hours. We won't. But, I mean, we could debate that for hours because you really don't know. Um, and 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 sometimes you have to be responsive to sort of your audience. And I remind folks that, well, you go and look at, at, at a Chamber's webpage, you see a lot of corporate names. Whether you're in whether you're in Oxford, Pennsylvania, or you're at the Chester County Chamber or the Philadelphia Chamber, the, the names you see on the masthead are names or companies that everybody recognizes. But for us, we had 800 members, 700 were small businesses. So when you go to a, when I go to a national event, I would, you know, where you're from Chester County, I'm like, mm. I say Vanguard, QVC, like, okay. They don't know where those are, but they've heard of them. But as the CEO, I know that 80, you know, 80, 90% of our members had 25 employees or less. And again, we're going to charge you a thousand dollars to join. You're not going to do that. You don't want to bought. So, and we also wanted members to join because we wanted we wanted you engaged in public policy. So, it's a balance. But you know, you go back to those sort of the inherent three silo, three funnels of money: membership, events, sponsorships, and you try and tweak those 
uh, levers as much as possible to find out the right balance. So assuming you guys want to pretty much exponentially just keep gaining members and growing as a chamber and an organization, what were some of the specific business development techniques you put into action once you took took over as CEO? Um, we began to look at our fee structure and the benefits. And uh, the first thing we noticed is that in an attempt to try and serve, which service organizations do, we began offering people so many benefits that I realized that most people didn't know all the benefits they had. So we didn't, but at the same time, we didn't want to feel as though we were taking away benefits from people. So I didn't want somebody to take a screenshot in 2014 and say, wait, for, for $500, I get 19 benefits. And then a month later, I say, for $500, I get 10, 10 benefits or four benefits. Where'd you go? But we started to say, okay, we need to just say that certain things are for everybody. And then go back and look and see where do, where, where do you get more? Again, you know, the going to a hotel or going to the, you know, get a silver card or a gold card or a platinum card. What benefits really made sense to people? Uh, one of the things, so for example, as I noticed, is that we were we were charging people to use our conference rooms, and and you know I said this strikes me as strange, and they said well it's sort of an upcharge. I said yeah, but we want people in the building, so why am I doing it? Uh, now again, to exaggerate, if a major corporation wanted to rent all of our conference rooms for a day and have 50 employees come for a training session or for team building. That's different than a financial planner coming in and say, can I borrow the conference room from 3 to 4 o'clock because I'm meeting with a client? Or, you know, could you come in and meet with somebody or, or whatever? So what we decided is, for example, that would be free. So that was removed as a perk for higher level fees, but I had to make sure that the people paying a thousand or two thousand dollars a year didn't feel like, well, you took one of my benefits away. And one of the ways we did that was to go back and say, okay, you're not really using it. So, you know, uh, PNC Bank really wasn't coming by and using our conference rooms, even though they were entitled to it because they were paying a gazillion dollars. I use that as a microcosm. So the first thing is we looked at was our whole fee structure and, and benefits and tried to scale it to a way that made sense that we thought for, for members, what did they really want and what should be in a core basic? You know, even if you paid, even if you paid $200 a year or $199 at sort of the entry level, there were certain things we wanted to make sure you do. The second was uh, trying to convince my board not to be penny wise and pound foolish, which is we wanted people at events. Now that seem, may sound silly or obvious, but again, you go back to you have to charge money because events cost money because you're paying a staff and there's overhead. Uh, but again, if we're offering a seminar on best business practices or putting on our policy hats, if we're if we're holding a seminar on uh, when the federal government was looking and when they ultimately did change the federal tax structure, right? The tax code got rewritten. Well, we wanted 50, 100, 1,000 people to come to that because we wanted your input because we wanted to then lobby and say, this is what we like, this is what we don't like. And then when it passed, we wanted tons of people at those events because we wanted small businesses to know how to comply, know what there were advantages or any pitfalls. So we began, I guess in short to say, we looked at our, our membership and then we looked at our uh, events and tried to re-envision them. So one of the things we did was you got a free – everybody's membership came with X amount of free event passes, which was a different business model because, again, you go back to the three ways we made money. We knew we would 
at some point, quote, lose money in the funnel that brought in event money. But instead of having 17 people at an event, you might have 25. Instead of 25, you might have 40. And over time, we felt as though, well, then more people will come back. You'd say it was worthwhile because one of the dangers in a member organization is there's that core group of people that are very active and they're there. And after you see, you know, after you see Jim or Helen for the 19th time, you say, well, I'm not really networking. I get to see Jim and I got to catch up with him and he did buy the house and that's really great. But so we knew we wanted more people. So that's one of the things we examined was what was the ROI for membership and then how to how to structure events uh, in terms of dollars and cents um, and know that we we wanted people at the events because people at events generates interest and brings you back. Um, but again, I mean, all, all sort of at some level, most organizations that are in the service business wrestle with that, right? You know. I mean, the, the Eagles charge $100 a ticket because they can still fill the stadium and they charge $500 for better seats because people will pay for them. And they know at some level they need the stadium filled because we all want to hear the roar of the crowd. So they're they're playing with that. They're playing with a different business model because there's a structure and there's a finite number of events. But I mean, but to a certain extent, they're they're in that market. And we, need, we knew that we had to do that. Um, making the events free makes them seem as though they have no value, making them too expensive chases people away. You had to find that right that right balance. And at the same time, your membership had to give you some tangible benefit other than you can call us if you ever need marketing advice. You can use a conference room. We had to give them something tangible. So one of the things we landed on was that. Um, the other thing for our larger companies, we had to, we were beginning to go the way that some businesses were, which was we had to begin to offer concierge service. So things like, you know, where do you want to sit? Um, where, wh- what events do you want to sponsor? What, you know, what type of events don't we do that you'd like to do? Because you had people writing, you know, companies writing four and five figure checks, and I had to make sure that they thought they were getting ROI uh, as well. So it was looking at it at all ends from the startup to, you know, the, the major corporations. And that's always the challenge in any chamber is how do you do the fee structure and how do you make sure people are getting benefit? So you want to keep growing the chamber memberships and you want to keep your events packed with people. So how do you, from a marketing perspective, get the message out there and let people know about your chamber? So it de- it's all the above, uh, you know, to use the cliche we use for so many things. When you run a chamber that has 800 members, you are dealing with all types of businesses of all sizes. You're dealing with all age groups. So, you know, you have members that are, you know, 18, 19-year-old entrepreneurs coming out of school that have started a side business from high school, and they want to grow their business, and they want to draw attention. They may be looking for financing or marketing skills. And then you have Vanguard. You know, I always use Vanguard, 11,000 employees, $3 trillion. There aren't a lot of Vanguards. But they're both members. So how do you market? Well, you market very differently. You market very differently for the businesses that are run by one person. If I want to get hold of Alex, I get a hold of Alex. Um, when you're dealing with a major company, candidly, it's a challenge. Because if you go to a company and use Vanguard as an example, and not literally how they work, but to explain it is that when Vanguard's a member, in theory, their 11,000 employees can come to our events. Now, the reality is 
10,800 of them never come to our events. I wish, you know, I wish they had, but they didn't. Um, but, but what do I mean by that? So who are you marketing to? Well, you're marketing to the people who want to interface with the public. Well, that may be different than the people in the controller's office who get the invoice. Well, I also so, meant like um, from a strategy perspective, like how do you market to those people? What oh, what sure. systems are you using? Sure. So we had tried a whole bunch of things. Um, and we had tried a whole bunch of things. So one was uh, when I arrived, we were still doing old-fashioned new uh, an envelope packet. So once a month, we would send you out what's coming next month. And, and again, in the large company, it would go to the wrong person. But in small companies, you also were learning, particularly as we were having a generational shift, like you got, you, you probably don't want a giant envelope filled with flyers that you have to open and pour through. And then you look through and then you manu- you take out your phone and you say, okay, September 17th seminar on accounting practices. Okay, that's not going to do it. So, you know, I had to be the guy that say to the board, we're going to stop mailing packets with flyers. Um, but we needed flyers. And uh, so what did we do? So first is, first and foremost, you're advertising to the people who are already members because they, even if, even if they only attend one event a year, part of the ROI was showing them that we were doing something with their money, whether they gave us $2, I'm sorry, $200 or 25000 It was important that they understood that every month we were doing a business after hours or a workshop or a seminar. So we would constantly do that. So we would do it in two ways. Uh, again, which seem relatively old-fashioned now, but we would email all of our members and say, this is the calendar of events. And then we would email our members uh, based upon their buying history. We would email them specially. You know, you attended the Young Professionals networking event three months ago. We're doing another one September 17th. You should come. So old school, the idea of, well, sorry, old school, you did one, you, you probably come to another. So we'll give that back to you. Uh, let you know again. So I would say the largest tool we used for the lo- longest time was to get away from the paper, was to get to email. And and then we would do a newsletter, which again would be electronic. And then we gradually started moving, I would say sometime around eight, probably by 17 or 18, started using social media to promote. Then by probably 2018 or 2019, we would start posting from the event. You would start posting on Twitter and saying, we're here at such and such, or uh, putting a picture on Instagram saying, we're here. And then the next phase was we started filming folks and doing, you know, little brief, um, it, you know, vignettes. You interview somebody for 20 seconds. What did? Why did you come? Did you like it? What did you like about it? And then we would post that after the fact. Obviously, a week later, you're not selling tickets to the event that just happened, but you're sort of saying, gee, this is this is a random person from, you know, uh, from Citizens Bank that showed up and she had a wonderful time. So the next time we have a, an event about whatever you should come. I would say that the main tools that were the steadfast were, were the email uh, and uh, email alerts about an event, emails about that, but has now moved into social media. 
in using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to promote the events. But again, because of the age span and the and the structures, you still have to do uh, an email with a flyer and you do like a PDF attachment because particularly in companies, they need that. So it's what I would share is that there's the marketing side, but there's the practical. With bigger companies, it's sometimes two or three professionals have to approve you know, Marianne wants to go to the event. So you've got to present it in this format, which is like the PDF, because she's going to have to literally forward the email to the other person for the other person to say, yes, you can go. So putting it on Facebook makes it a lot more tedious because then she has to save it and it's a picture and she's going to stop it. Mm. So, so I share what may be at times somewhat antiquated or even uh, awkward or time-consuming, but you have to be cognizant of that because if you don't do that, you're going to lose a whole market group of people that are operating in a more corporate, in a more corporate structure. Um, we had not gotten to the point of texting, um, and part of that was a practical, which is the majority of members still did not want to tell us their cell phones. So you couldn't really do like a text alert, hey, five more days until the seminar on taxes or three more days until we're going to do this. You, you couldn't really do that effectively because people didn't want to share that. So email became the primary tool and then moving into social media. And then, you know, before I had to leave, you know, before I left the chamber, but we didn't really get to the point because of COVID of really being able to do the analytics because we knew that on the back end, we'd have to st- do the analytics on Twitter and Facebook to see who was reading it and who was opening it and who was commenting and who was forwarding it, which was the next phase to find out if those things were effective. And so uh, when you're using social media and email, are those paid campaigns? Are they organic campaigns or a mixture of both? So the chamber, um, the the only time. So I can't speak to now. So during my tenure, the the only time all of it was organic and just regular. We'd be like every Thursday, every Tuesday and Thursday, we would do, uh, you know, what's coming next week and what's coming this week. You know, Thursday was what's coming next week. Tuesday was what's coming this week. And ping, 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 ping. All organic. Uh, all organic. And then the only time we did paid was actually during the COVID era um, was on when we were involved with the ballot question. So if folks remember back in May of 21, there were ballot questions to limit the governor's power so that uh, executive orders had to be approved by the legislature. That's a gross oversimplification, but it is what it is. We did We did do paid on that because we were generating petitions uh, to try and show legislators and the governor's office different issues. So those were, again, as any group would do on multi-levels. One was we were trying to show support. We were also trying to capture names to learn which one of our members were actually responding, who was engaging in this sort of thing. So the only stuff we did on the paid side was on was on what I would call you know advocacy, which was in part to do first and foremost, to do the advocacy, to try and pass the ballot questions, to try and get people engaged. But the secondary was to, was we knew that we were testing and learning as to see who was reading what and what would work. Was it was it pop-up ads, uh, you know, at philly.com, which now, I guess, inquirer.com? Uh, was it daily local news? Was it more organic? You know, was it Google? What worked? And, uh, and again, from my perspective, um, I— 
I was gone before we got to see that, but they were capturing that to learn. So the the one real venture in that was uh, for that, and I just say, but for the exception, when we would do the annual dinner, when we picked an honoree, uh, once that honoree was selected, if we thought he or she had a market, we would use it uh, and then we would do paid um, pop-up ads in in either things like philly.com or if that person came from a niche industry, we would try to go to people in that industry and say to them, you know, here we're honoring one of your own. And I would share what may be obvious, but that wasn't so much to increase ticket sales as for sponsorships, but also for branding purposes. So you honor an executive at Johnson & Johnson and you promote it heavily among uh uh, places where people in the life sciences industry look, and if they if they bought a thousand dollar sponsorship or a five thousand dollar sponsorship, that was terrific. But it was helping us break into that market with credibility. You may not know the Chester County Chamber, but <clears throat> we're honoring somebody from Johnson and Johnson. You may want to pay attention to us, or we're honoring someone from, you know, we honored the guys from Victory Brewing. And, you know, so we marketed that. We tried to do some of that to younger audiences um, in the hope that, again, not necessarily they were going to buy a $200 ticket and go to an event at Longwood, but to say, well, maybe the chamber isn't this old, you know, 70-year-old white guys hanging out smoking cigars. Maybe it's a little more approachable for us. Uh, so those are the two times where, where we did it. But the, the most aggressive was really during the, the public policy advocacy side. And, and again, I, I was not there to be, you know, I, I was, you know, I had departed by the time we would have sat down and looked at it. So in order for these campaigns to really be successful strictly organically, you usually have to have a pretty big following. Yeah. Uh, what's the size of your following on social media and which platforms were you using? Wow. Um, so good point. Um, what we tried to do um, all throughout was encourage people to, to use them. And every campaign was to try and do that. So what we did was, I know it's hard to believe, but so we were trying to nudge the organic growth along by having interns go and track our members to see if our members had Twitter or Facebook accounts and then ask them to follow us. So this is sort of, you know, old school meets new school. So it wasn't so much uh, an orga a paid campaign to go raise profile. It was, again, thinking in terms of a chamber where your first audience is making sure your members are happy. And your second is, you know, built upon that. Assuming you have happy members, it's easier to draw in new members because the existing the existing 800 members will say good things to the prospects. So it was very slow and tedious of going and seeing who had what and remembering that we were less trying to attract strangers and more trying to attract that. Oh, I don't and and as far as numbers I I as I would have said back in the ask Laura because Laura was in charge of that. Um, I think it's hundreds or thousands. Oh, it, it, probably by the time we left, by the time I left, I mean probably two thousand in each. And 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 as you can imagine, very different. You know, the people on Twitter were different than the people on Facebook, and the people on Instagram were very very different. Um, and we were using it for that. And then, um, 
so we, we never really did a paid campaign because, again, we weren't interested in growing Facebook to 25,000 followers weren't opposed to it. But the objective wasn't that. The objective was, are we doing everything in our power to make sure our members are happy and aware and seeing pictures and seeing, you know, we spoke out against Senate Bill 12 and we had a business after hours. We had axe throwing and we had a round table with Senator Toomey so that we were showing we're giving you what you wanted. We're giving you face-to-face interaction. We're giving you fun. We're highlighting local businesses, but we're meeting with policymakers. So that's what we promised you we would do if you have a business. So it, it is somewhat different than than if you're in a uh, if you're in a traditional B2C and you're trying to raise awareness because you're trying to sell product, uh, we began with the premise that we had to make sure the existing folks were happy. And then we knew that as we tried to attract new members, um, most of our new members would come because a member referred them. So we were very sensitive to that. And all of our studies showed uh, that uh, well over half of our members came because an existing member asked. So that altered that very, you know, so not to be facetious, but I, I, I wasn't, you know, we weren't doing pop-up ads. Uh, you know, I, we weren't doing 30-second commercials during an Eagles game, you know, uh, on TV or radio because our audience was make our members happy. Happy members mean they renew. Happy members mean they come to events. And happy members we know ultimately recruit new members. Uh, so our followers were in the hundreds, maybe thousands, but it was really focused on that one at a time, looking them up and going and looking. And then over time, as those things became more prevalent, saying, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, um, and and teaching them hashtags. And again, old school, new school, uh, having events where we would print posters with the hashtag for the event so that the people my age would understand and say, when you post your picture or you tell us thank you, use this, you know, use this hashtag, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, whatever, CCBI 2020, put that up there so that people can follow it. Um, so, you know, a, a, big, a bit of old and new, but again, I think somewhat hard to apply to other businesses, right? Because if you're running a cheesesteak place, you, of course, want the folks buying the cheesesteak to have a good experience and be happy. But if you have the same 10 customers come every day and they're really happy, that's great. But that's a business model that's going to die. You've got to get 1,000 people buying your cheesesteaks. We knew we needed that, but we knew first and foremost our members had to have the sense that they got something for it. Right. Yeah, I guess the, it is that customer loyalty right. is kind of what you were focusing in on and what made you successful. I'm kind of spinning off of that too. I know there's there's a ton of chambers right in this area. What was kind of your relationship with, I know, the glory at the Exton Chamber and stuff? How did you guys kind of work? I know you guys don't really see each other as competition, more as just resource. How did you team up? Well, maybe you can speak to that better no, than me. But no, no. How did, how did you guys work with other chambers or kind of deal with the fact you had so much direct competition in the exact same services? Sure. So the idea was always uh, from our chamber that we had a few rules. One was... Uh, we never would tell somebody not to join another chamber. Uh, and it's not because we were saintly or whatever. It was just that it, we thought it was a bad business model. We thought it was a bad reputation. Uh, I would tell you in a, in a parallel universe, I'll just mention as a side, being the Chester County Chamber, we never cheered, if you will, uh, 
literally or figuratively, when Philadelphia City Council would do something stupid or some company would say they were leaving Philadelphia because we understood economically that if a major company leaves Philadelphia, they probably weren't relocating to Exton. They were more likely going to Austin. So we never said like, well, yay. No, we knew bad. A thousand jobs leave Philly, go to Austin. That invariably will harm us. Same way with the chamber is um, – yeah, sure. It was a competition. If so, if somebody had, if a business had a finite number of dollars, if they spent them at the Exton Chamber and didn't spend them with us, you know, that was bad. But from our perspective, if they were engaged in a chamber, that was a good thing. So we had, uh, we we used to call it a friendly competition, but uh, we did work collegially and sometimes figuratively and sometimes literally. So th there are nine chambers that are entirely contained in Chester County. We would have lunch. The CEOs would have lunch three times a year and just talk. And as I used to say, and complain about our boards or our staff and also get away so they could all complain about us. Um, so we always had a collegial. We all knew each other's phone numbers, emails, and we would talk. Um, and then we would do structured events. We would do one or two events a year. So we used to do one event that we would rotate around the county every every other year and invite our boards to meet one another. So we would provide networking and ROI. So the Phoenixville Chamber Board got to meet the Southern Chester County Chamber Board, and et cetera, et cetera. Then we would do one event, and that event would range from something like a business expo that we used to do at like Church Farm School, and 200 businesses would go, and we each would sell tables. So again, you got to meet, and that was a very you know, B2B type of event. Um, and that's the way things were until the spring of 2020. And then we started to talk once a week. And in part, it was therapy for us because we were all working seven days a week. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hero. Like, you know, some people were ER nurses, uh, you know, and, and the folks who did, you know, garbage collection and what have you. But I will tell you from our chamber, when we went home um, that Friday – I took my first day off in August. Now, again, I'm not a hero and I was working by phone and I was in no danger of dying. But in other words, I was getting phone calls and emails seven days a week. And most of the other chambers were because we were learning. Remember, we were learning about the virus. We were learning about gloves and masks. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, I think, I think I'm a relatively bright guy in tune. I didn't know where you bought rubber gloves or masks. And, and I certainly didn't know how you bought them by the case. Um, PPP loans, everybody has to remember, were invented out of thin air. I mean, it was a, it was a piece of legislation. And, and we were expected to learn what they were in a way that we could explain them to bakers, butchers, people running antique shops. And they were calling us because they didn't know who else to call. So as chambers, we met and we helped each other. Nobody said, gee, I, I hope the Oxford Chamber goes out of business because then I'll steal their 50 members. It was... They have 50 members, and we were all bright enough. First of all, morally we understood, but also economically in our minds we understood. If the 50 small businesses in Oxford go out of business, this is bad for all of us because there's a ripple effect because they, you know, they're human beings, but they're also human beings that buy and sell things. Um, so the relationship went from that sort of uh, collegial professional to becoming – we literally spoke every week, uh, and we lobbied together. 
we, we met with elected officials and we all helped explain all these things with each other in terms of loans and packages and grants and, and what have you. And uh, it generally, it generally worked, uh, it generally worked well. Uh, look, it, you know, there were nine of us and as March, we were all in this together by April, by May, and we were nine different people and our perspectives began, but we, we, we were good enough friends and respected each other enough that by May it became pretty clear that we had varied opinions on what was happening and that was beginning to spill over. You know, I was getting the reputation of the guy who was not a happy camper. I started speaking out on the radio and writing and saying, we're locking down too much. This is bad. Some of my colleagues didn't agree. But we learned as a mutual spec, and when the nine of us got on the phone, the goal was to help our help the business community. And it wasn't about – again, it was back to looking, what do we all agree on? What do we have in common? Not, you know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign a letter to the governor saying it's time to reopen outdoor dining. Some of the other chambers didn't want to do that. I didn't berate them about it, and they generally didn't berate me about it. When we would get on the phone with elected officials, they would say ahead of time, you know, guy play nice, but, you know <laughs> – that would be it. But but on the other hand, I, I I learned after the fact that like you have in those situations, there's a few of them that knew that that was my role. So they could sit quietly on the phone while Guy yelled at the elected officials because that was Guy's job. <laughs> yeah, as as your position of kind of a business leader of the chamber, we, we certainly appreciated you fighting for small businesses because yeah. there's so, so many of them. They're all so different and not a lot of them are great at some of those things like communicating to legislature and stuff like that, what they actually need. So it's, it's really nice to have that kind of representation. Um, to kind of switch gears into your congressional run, you mentioned earlier that it's a business of its own. Mm-hmm. What's Walk us through the business development of a congressional campaign. How do you what, – what's the process? Where do you begin when you want to – Run for something yeah. that level. So right. So putting sort of party and, and platform aside for a second, as a as a business enterprise. Um, so the first is it's it's easy in the sense the goal is to win. Then you need a plan. So in that way, it's like a business. You know, what's your plan? And and depending on, you know, and then it's a mix. And 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 I hate to say it because it's a phrase we used a lot in 2020, but you build the airplane while you're flying. I mean, you you can't announce for Congress and then say, dear outside world, now that I've made this momentous decision, I'm going to take the next 60 days and figure out a business plan and a fundraising plan and a marketing plan and my platform. Please hold all questions and we'll come back to you. You announce. Now, clearly you've done a little bit of due diligence ahead of time, but there's a clock in, in elections. I mean, you know, the election is going to be November 8th. Uh, so you have to get up and going. So there is that you're always building, growing, and executing at the same time. Uh, I'd like to say that the most precious commodity in a campaign is time. People think it's money. It's not. It's time. You know, you, at the end of the day, your budget is your budget, and you could always use a hundred thousand or a million more, but it's time. So you, you. So what do you do from the beginning? So you you make sure. You know, there's the whole. If you think sort of in one side, there's sort of the legal and the compliance, which is very boring. You have to file your paperwork. You have to file reports. You have to keep records. 
you know, and try not to go to jail or get yelled at or make stupid mistakes. So there's a compliance side. There's the the messaging side, which is really built around each candidate. What do you want to talk about? Why are you, you know, what's your what's your it? You know, why why are you running? And and then there's the other side, which uh, the next, which is a team. And and in a campaign, uh, particularly as a challenger, you're not going to have 40 people. I mean, these these pictures sometimes in the movies, and I don't know why in the movies they always have those sort of straw hats with the red, white, and blue. Nobody really wears those things. <laughs> um, but you know, but also too, I mean, as a challenger, I, I have a paid staff. I've paid staff, but I have tons of volunteers and even super volunteers that work 10, 20, 30, 40 hours a week. But again, the world we're in currently. You've got to build that, but understand they're not all going to sit in an office. They're going to be in their homes. Now, we have an office, but again, like a lot of businesses have an office, that's more for getting people together. So you've got your compliance side. You've got your messaging part. You've got staffing. You've got to develop structure there. Who's going to do what? You have to agree on what you're going to do because you can't do everything. And one of the things that's great about campaigns is sort of a mixed blessing is that lots of people give you lots of advice. You ought to do this. And as you probably have encountered in your work, is people love to throw tactics. They don't throw strategy. You ought to have a rally. You ought to challenge her to debate. You ought to make your signs green because nobody does green. Like These are like tactics. It's not a mm -hmm. strategy. And they just want to see action because they just want you to win. And what you find is you invariably meet a core group of people and that group gets bigger and bigger. And they just so desperately want you to win that they just are constantly emoting ideas. And so another part of it is you've got to take this in but sort of process it. And you can't say no all the time, but you, you can't deviate because you come back to the principle of time. Uh, then the other is the fundraising because none of this works without money. So you've got to raise money. So while you're shaking hands and kissing babies, while you're recruiting a staff, while you're trying to be a decent human being to the people who are volunteering, you have you have to go raise money or otherwise there are no signs and there are no ads. And that's enormously time consuming. And the old rule of thumb is you, know, you sort of take out, you take your, your basis, whether your basis is your, your Facebook friends, you know, we say your Christmas card list, whatever, and you begin there. And these people that you've known for a year or 20 years, you now change the nature of the relationship because it's now, would you send money? And some people are used to it. I mean, there's all sorts of public records. I mean, you, you could spend 10 minutes on a computer or on your phone. You can find out who donates to my campaign or Chrissy Houlihan's campaign or Josh Shapiro's campaign or Dr. Oz's campaign or John Fetterman's campaign, whatever. You could find it, right? But after you find that, you then have to find a way to contact them. But, but again, you're sort of going to the people you know give. Your, your Christmas card list or your holiday list or your who, would, who got invited to your wedding list could be 300 people, 295 of whom have probably never written a political check and think the idea of doing that is weird. And then when you dare say to them, like, I'd like $2,500, you have to resuscitate them. You say, but I've got to raise a million dollars. So thank you for your $2,500. You've now moved the needle negligibly. Thank you very much because now I have to just make, I just have to make 5,000 more of these calls and I'm in business. And so you have that. And then there's a whole other side of logistics. I mean, the lawn signs, the bumper stickers. So you're doing this all 
every day or you're hoping your team is doing it every day. And then without getting into it, I pause, but there's the other part. So you try and start what I just described to some extent is a startup advertising business. It's a startup lemonade stand. It's a startup accounting practice, right? Here's the difference. While you're doing that, your opponent is shooting at you. So you're, you're sort of saying, I'm not ready yet, right? It's sort of you're in the ring, you're, you're fixing your headgear, and the opponent comes over and punches you in the back of the head. You say, well, I wasn't ready yet. Well, you know, and in fairness, it's not, it's not Chrissy Houlihan's job to say, well, let me wait until a guy gets his campaign organized and hires his volunteers and raises money, and then it'll be a fair fight. Um, there's, there's that part, which is you're being hit through a Facebook ad or a digital ad or Facebook posts or emails or people taunting you at an event uh, while you're trying to do your thing uh, is a real challenge. And, and I alluded to there's a whole other silo of communications and social media. It, you know, Because the campaign's now 24-7. I mean, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is check my emails, my texts, and then social media. And then you wrestle with, are these bots? Are these real people? Is it the same person with 19 accounts just saying horrible things 19 different ways? Do I respond? Does my staff respond? Do we ignore it? And and you do that today and you go to bed and you wake up tomorrow and do it again. And there's a little bit of fundraising, a little bit of staff, a little bit of logistics, messaging. You poke at her. She pokes at me. It's uh, it's not boring. Yeah, so when you started the campaign, what – what kind of strategies did you put in place to to manage everything and make sure all those different verticals and aspects of the campaign were actually moving and you weren't you know burning your time, which is so short before the actual date? Yeah. So so some of it was uh, creating a kitchen cabinet was bringing in people who I knew who had been through this before and saying to them, okay, so we're, a bunch of us are together, we're all real smart, and we all want me to win. So what do I do for, like, you know, literally saying those open-ended questions. What's the first thing we do? What are some timelines? You know, it's it's the end of February. What should we have in place by March 30th? Uh, in my case, I had a contested primary. Uh, what we thought was going to be a five-way primary wound up being a four-way primary, but I had a primary. And if I didn't win the primary, this was all over. So our time frame was not November 8th. It was May 17th. So what did we put in place? So I brought in people I trusted, and we sent benchmarks for each of those things and asked each of these folks who were friends, way overqualified, who I couldn't afford to pay a penny to, having them oversee fundraising, messaging, logistics, and then bringing in staff to do those things. Uh, how do you do it? You do it, you hope with a plan. Uh, you hope that you're mindful of it. And one of the things in politics is that you work backwards. So this first campaign was May 17th backwards. We knew we had to be ready for election day. We knew things had happened before election day. We knew what we wanted to do. Uh, another thing in, in a campaign is you're going to try and figure out who your, who your voters are because you try and through, through studies and analysis and analytics, you know, like in my race, you know, without without getting into sort of trade secrets, there are a block of people that are probably going to vote for Chrissy Houlihan no matter what I do. There are a block of people who are going to vote for me no matter what I do. And then there's the third group of people who are going to decide the election. 
And her side and my side are trying to figure out who they are and trying to figure out what, what to push the buttons. So part of what my team will do is try and figure out who those people are. So another piece of it is while I'm going out shaking hands, kissing babies, while I'm raising money, while we're dealing with social media, it's, it's also geared towards being cognizant of that the goal is to win, which may seem obvious. But because the goal is to win, there are things you have to do. So in my case, it was relying on people that I trusted. It was trying to develop a plan and then making sure that we were mindful of the time and the benchmarks to, to meet those things. And then in my case, you know, we won May 17th. Well, back up. The primary was May 17th. It wasn't clear that I was going to win until late on Wednesday, and I wasn't declared the winner until Thursday. And and without getting sort of too political, just to give an idea of that. So I woke up Wednesday. I went to three events that night. I assumed, I mean, I was ahead, but it was close. So I went out and campaigned at three events Wednesday night under the belief that I was going to win. And I was running on adrenaline. I mean, I hadn't slept. And we were starved for information because in Pennsylvania, we don't seem to be very good at counting votes. That's not even a political statement. It's just, you know, ask, ask Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick, you know, 33 days to count votes. But, but Thursday, now the 19th, at 3.41 in the afternoon, the Associated Press sends out a tweet saying, you know, the we've seen enough. Guy Shiraki is going to win the Republican nomination in the 6th District. 343, the Inquirer reposts the tweet and says, we, you know, we, this is what, you know, we joined the Associated Press in their assessment. 341, Associated Press. 343, Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm out at an event. 347, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee sends out its first tweet shooting at me. Now, I'm a big boy. I'm not going to cry. But my point is, like, welcome to the world. I mean, so that's the world you're in, which is 341, you're declared the winner. I'm out at an event. I don't know this has happened. 343, it gets verified. 347, the first attack hits. And, and so I'm at an event, getting ready to leave, to drive an hour to go to another event. And now I've got media calls from the Inquirer and the Reading Eagle and, the, and you know, Patch and everybody else. What's your reaction to winning? And by the way, this is the first attack. What do you do? And I've got to gather myself, get from the event I'm going to the next event. You know, and, and that's sort of the baptism by fire. And that, that's what goes on each day. You're at an event and something happens. Was this your first time being uh, like personally attacked? I mean, for political reasons or or in this manner anyway? Uh, it was the first time I was attacked on, on Twitter, which was nice. Uh, I took a screenshot. It's almost a badge of honor at that point. That's right. I, I had run for office uh, years ago in 2008, um, and, and that was more um, um, direct mail. Um, I somewhere, I still have a, a box of what was $747,000 worth not that I counted, $747,000 worth of, of direct mail. Uh, the, the fellow I ran against sent out 25 pieces of, you know, those sort of oversized political postcards. Mm -hmm. he, sent out, he sent out 27 postcards. 24 of them were about me. Um, so my name ID was really high. Um, 
so so that was different. Uh, but having it live and having everybody being having my son in New Orleans being able to see it, ha- having my daughter in Cincinnati being able to see it, uh, was a very different thing than than the direct mail, which. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, our kids were young. We didn't say, look, look, they said, dad's crazy. Look at this. You know, um, it, look, it, it, it bothers you. It doesn't bother you. You know, it, you know, life goes on. They're going to, they're going to say things. It's the nature of the beast. Um, do you we'll guys, see what happens. Um, do you guys, when you have bad information you want to pass along about your opponent, I'll say that way. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something you guys will orchestrate, or do you kind of let the party you're running under kind of fund and do its own thing? So I would say there, all the above. So one of the one of the differences now in politics, even more so than any time I've been around it, um, is that you have so many people that just do things that you have no control over. And what do I mean by that? these are independent organizations and I don't mean like independent nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like, you know, in campaigns you see, you know, you know, this is, you know, Dr. Ox, Dr. Oz is a rhino, you know, paid for by the Americans for a better America. Well, everybody knows that it's the other candidates are doing that, but whatever. No, but I mean, there are genuinely other groups that just exist. You know, there are organizations on the left and the right that are fighting for tr- control of Congress, and in fairness to Chrissy Houlihan and me, we're just we're just pieces on the chessboard. They don't really care. They don't know me. They never met me. And some of them love me and never met me. They'll never know me. Some of them don't. So, so to your question is some of the stuff that that I would do, or some of the stuff, frankly, that we would choose not to say, others do, and that sort of makes it moot. Um. In terms of the attack, I'm I'm comfortable personally more in well, it depends attack, but again, the sort of compare and contrast, uh, the fact based stuff. So you can see that you can see that we've done what I'll say is fact based stuff, and and then you draw your own conclusion. Um, so we haven't really done the like you know the envelope left on the doorstep at three o'clock in the morning, and no, I mean it. You know, I've been pretty clear. Look, I think this race is pretty simple, and without really getting into the you know the politics and the nastiness of it, um, this election's a referendum. I th- I think things are going really poorly. Uh, she's voted for every every policy that the president's asked for. If and I don't mean this flippantly. I mean, but if if your if your outlook on life is that you think they've done a good job, it's pretty straightforward. So when I do this stuff and they say, well, you did an attack ad, I said, well, I did an attack ad saying she voted for X bill that caused Y consequence. I'm not attacking her character. I'm not saying she's a bad person. As far as I know, she's a nice person and loves her kids and, and you know, loves her husband and pays her taxes. I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, there is an interesting twist to this in that she attended nine chamber events and sat with me at meetings. And during the pandemic, she appeared on some of our Zoom calls, and I appeared on one of her Zoom calls. Um, so that's a twist that I share sometimes with the press, which is I, my objective is not really to vilify her as much as to say, I, I think she's cast bad votes. Her, her view of the world, she's had a chance to do it. Her view of the world hasn't worked. Joe Biden's view of the world hasn't worked. It doesn't make them bad people. Um, it's a very different thing. So I tend to go down that path. 
Uh, there are other groups who are going to go down different paths, and and the stuff on me, um, you know. Again, I think when you're hit, it's different. I I think the the saying saying that you know I'm on a crusade against women is different than saying you voted 100 percent of the times with Joe Biden. You voted 100 percent Joe Biden. Any person can pull up roll call votes and do that. The you hate women gets dangerously close to character attacks, and I'm a big boy, and they're going to happen. Is that a real attack? Somebody's saying that? Yeah. That was the first one. I said it was a crusade. I was a crusade against uh, women, which was interesting because I was at – I've been a girls softball coach for 23 years, um, and I was at Conestoga High School's um, senior day of high school softball because I had coached those girls since they were 10. So there was a bit of irony being attacked by uh, folks in Washington to being told that I was on a crusade against women uh, at, at a girls softball game with girls that I had coached for eight years. But again, you know, look, and again, it's, it's not like either side's immune from it, right? I mean, it's not like either. That's why I said, so I think what you'll see from me is a lot of stuff about compare and contrast on votes. You know, she voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. I wouldn't um, she seems uh, comfortable with the the student uh, student loan forgiveness. Uh, I think that's bad policy. Um, again, it doesn't mean doesn't mean she's a horrible person. It's just it's two different views of the world. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think elections are referend. I, I think elections when there's an incumbent are referendums, and and it's sort of a you know it's sort of like a contract up for renewal. She's coming up, up on the end of a two-year contract. Do you renew it or try something else? And and her objective is, you know, is a mix of either saying that her record deserves it or whatever you think of me, this is worse. You know, you're driving a car that's leaking oil, but but that car has no gas tank, you know, or whatever. You know, you know pick, you know, I, I may be bad, but he's worse, which which may be where we wind up before this is over. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance that of, one, it's your campaign, you're essentially in charge of everything, but you're also the public face of it, and you need to be out there. How do you how do you balance that directing and also being the star of the show itself? Um, so one is you try to allow the staff to do as much as they can do so that I'm not involved. But it's a small it's again. It's not Vanguard, so I'm involved. I can't sort of say, "Well, I'm detached." Well, I'm not detached because my name's on the the lawn signs and the bumper stickers. Uh, but so first and foremost, you try and remove yourself as much as possible, so that when I go to a chicken dinner, I'm focused on it. When I do a, a radio interview or a podcast, that I'm there. You know, you have to be mentally where you are. the The second is is that um, I have to be I have to be comfortable. Uh, in what's said about me and what I say and what is said. Um, so um, what what comes out under my campaign, I, I'm, you know, I can't say, well, you know, that was my staff. That's, you know, that's Bush leak. But, you know, if, if Americans United for a Better America say something and I truly don't know who they are, I truly, that's different. So how do you keep a balance? Is you hire a good staff and you trust them? Um, and that when I'm a candidate, I'm a candidate and, and when I'm on the road now, I'm always a candidate, but in other words, when I go to a chicken dinner or I go to a rally or I go to a rotary meeting, I'm out and about. 
And I always say to folks, like, you can ask me any question. I may not want to answer it, uh, but I, but if I, if I go to a farmer's market in Berks County and you see me, you have the right to come out and ask me a question. Now, I may say it's a silly question or I don't know or whatever, but I mean, part of the game is part of the, part of the election process, part of democracy, part of having a, a democratic republic is that folks can ask you questions. It's not a one-way street. You say, well, I didn't, you know. On the other hand, if you're having a, uh, if you're giving a press conference talking about education and somebody's asking you about the environment, you can say, I, I need to finish this and then we'll go and talk, I'll have a side conversation with you on that. Um, look, it's a balancing. You probably never get it always right uh, because at the end of the day, your name's on the ballot, but you have to trust your team and you have to go out and uh, be be accessible to the public and, and stay on message. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, to run for Congress means ultimately if you're successful, you're, you're voting on everything from the military to foreign policy to transportation, environment, the FDA, uh, the EPA, you know, budgets, hearings, the courts, um, trillions of dollars. You can't know it all. You can't be expected to know it all. The same way in the campaign. That's why, you know, for me, I say, for me, I'm running on a platform that's focused on kids' crime and the economy. Again, to back to my example, it doesn't mean if you stop me and say, but what about transportation? Why don't you ever talk about transportation? You know that we have really old train tracks or we need – sure, but in the world of issues, what gets me out of bed in the morning, what caused me to leave my job, what caused me to do this is focusing on kids and education, reducing crime and fixing the economy. And, and that's one of the other things as a candidate you have to do. You have to sort of say, this is what I'm – I'm talking about, again, it's like, you know, we say like, you, you, you can go to Ruth's Chris and get fish if you want, but you know, they kind of told you that's not their deal. And that's the thing. So you can stop me and say, I feel very passionately about animal cruelty. And I said, sure, I'm happy to talk about it, but I, you know, that's not, that's, that's your passion. It's not my passion. It's not what woke me up. No, no, I, for the record, we have three rescue dogs. So just everybody understands. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, but Kids crime in the economy is what motivates me and what I want to talk about. And my responsibility as a candidate is to remind folks so that they leave or I leave an event and they say, I don't know, but, you know, he did, you know, what did he say? If you would come in afterwards, hopefully they'd say, well, he talked a lot about education, crime in the economy. Oh, okay. Then I did my job. You may agree or disagree, but at least I say, well, then I did my part. So I was just wondering, what would you say is one of the most enjoyable parts about being on the campaign trail? What are some of the highlights? Um, so for me, it's been it's been two things. One is uh, my wife, Chris, goes out on the trail sometimes. Um, she works and is taking care, from, care of my mom, but she goes on the trail probably once or twice a week on their own. And when I go to events and people say, hey, your wife was here back in July and she was terrific. So it's very nice to me. Uh, it may sound bizarre, but one of the really nice things is when people say very nice things about her um, because she, she's sacrificing a great deal. Um, and then the other for me is I would say both a, a, a curse and a blessing, which is I think because of the state of things right now with the uncertainty and the economy and a number of things – People share a great deal. 
um, I would say that that a significant amount of my time campaigning, um, like tonight, I'm going to go down to Oxford for First Friday. Um, it's not a political event. They're going to show antique cars, and then there are going to be people that have tables with information on charities, nonprofits, and people selling candles and insurance agents. It, I can't know for sure, but it would not surprise me if at some point someone I engage unburdens themselves and says, I used to run a beauty parlor, but it doesn't exist anymore because of the lockdown. Let me tell you why. Or uh, my, my kid hasn't been the same because. So what is nice is also the challenge, which is people are – there are a lot of people that want to tell their story. And, and I have to be honest, there are times where people, I'm not really sure they remember my name or they're not even really sure what they're running for. And they may not even understand that I'm in office versus running. But it's like, I'm a person, I have a flyer, I look sort of official, and they want to come up and say, hey, I, I got to tell somebody. And one of you, you know, because we're sort of this, you you know, we're, we're like, an, you're a generic, important person. You need to hear this. And, you know, my son came back from Iraq and and was stressed and he didn't get the support he need and he overdosed. So what is nice? What is nice is that you were there to listen to someone unburden themselves. But it's also very challenging because I'm going to an event because I'm supposed to smile and I'm supposed to shake hands and I'm supposed to make people think he seemed like a nice guy or he's a bright guy or he could do the job. But you're walking through a fair and someone spends nine minutes with you, 10 minutes, and tells you this. And you're supposed to be at that fair for another hour and you're supposed to go to the next booth. And the, the next booth, they're, you know, throw the rings around the bottle, which no one can ever do because the rings don't fit around the bottle. But, but it, you know, you're human. I mean, I'm human. I can't just like, okay, let's go, you know, hey, what's your name? Well, I'm Phil. Hey, Phil, great to meet you. I mean, you have to you know, at least me, I need a few minutes to sort of gather myself. So I feel the good is that I feel like I let someone share, uh, but it is also, it's a challenge. And it and it gives you a window into what the job would be because people are looking for help and sometimes not just help but to tell their story. So how do you, I guess, I want to say balance, but how do you develop your messaging, one based on your principles and who you'll be as a representative voting for all these policies for everyone and also you know you have to connect with them how do you boil it down to what you know what do you think will be the most important topics to yeah relay so two two things one is i always uh, joke the bad joke i use with my my staff is this with my team is um i used to say album but i'll say for you guys for a cd so i'm a cd and there's 10 songs on it and and i have to read the room and say which two you know I get I get fifteen minutes at at the bar. What two songs do you folks want to hear? So I say you're a really crappy person and a crappy politician if you tell if you tell a group in Phoenixville X and you tell a group in Malvern the opposite of X just because you're placating them. I would I don't do that. I mean I'm not perfect. I don't do it. But what I do say is I have ten songs on my album. And what did this crowd come to hear? Is it a room full of parents? Is it a room full of senior citizens? Is it a Republican audience? Is it a Democratic audience? What did they want to hear from me? So one of them is to be to be uh, self-aware and aware enough of your audience to understand what they want to hear. 
The second is, in terms of doing it, is um, I try to, whenever possible, break it down into analogies and into what I think is easier to understand. And let me be clear, not to talk down to somebody, but to but to explain it and say, this is at least how my mind works. You know, here's why I think, so the student loan, whether whether people agree or disagree, you know, the president says he's going to forgive student loans, good or bad. But I explain it to folks this way, okay. The debt doesn't go away. The debt is going to be paid by everyone else. So I try to say to folks, it's imagine if there was a giant conference table that 300 million people could all sit at, and they all had a piece of paper and a pen, and we all just sat down and co-signed the loan. Now, that may or may not work as an image, but I try to say, I use that to underscore to everybody. To me, that's what just happened. We each took on that debt. Then I will say to somebody, okay, there are a lot of small businesses that went into debt because of the pandemic. Some people borrowed against their home. Some may have borrowed against the retirement. Some may have borrowed from family and friends. There's, there's millions, if not billions of dollars in debt that small businesses took on to try and get through this. If we're going to start down a path of here's a group of people that are in over their head, and if they didn't have this debt, they would have this benefit, they could expand. They could hire somebody else. They could modernize their equipment. They could what? Yes. So, so what made this particular debt unique as opposed to the millions of small businesses that collectively have billions of dollars of debt? We could have forgiven that, but we didn't. Why? Because there's a general principle we have, which is people should be responsible for what they do. So one is, in, in talking to voters, I try to think about what it is we're talking about. I invariably am always going to touch on, you know, kids crime in the economy, but I may emphasize one or the other. And then two is, as we all try to work through what we now talk about trillions of dollars in federal agencies is how can I break it down in a way so that, so that we, even if we disagree, we're talking about in a way that we at least agree on what the facts are, what the parameters are. And yes, that means that sometimes you have to grossly oversimplify it and the analogy may not be perfect, but Try and put in a way to do that so that people understand because otherwise I think there's just a lot of anxiety or a lot of shouting because we just don't understand what we're what we're even really talking about. So I that's just a conversational way I've tried to do it over the years. And I think that in part comes from my life experience um, of of having to deal with with issues in government, as I say, on both sides of the table, where I've gone in as an advocate, but also gone in and been a legislative staffer and understanding, which is how do we get it to the point that we all know what we're talking about? Because once we all know what we're talking about, then we can then we can do it. If we don't understand, right, then, you know, then we have a problem. Uh, if we do, then we can at least dialogue and see whether we agree to disagree or we can find agreement. <clears throat> So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to tie you up too here. I know you have another event tonight. Um, I kind of, to close, wanted to just get your opinion. You've had so much experience around small businesses through the chambers and just your career. What's some general tips and strategies you would give to smaller businesses who are looking to grow and develop their business? What do you think is some of the most important steps they can take, someone who's just starting out or 
looking to grow and has kind of been stuck, not sure how to get past that. Yeah, wow. So there's a lot of things. So so one is do as much due diligence as possible before you start. Uh, particularly if you're going to start a business and that requires you to leave another business. You know, you work at, you know, ABC Widget Company and you're their best salesman or you're their best engineer. So I think one is you have to do your due diligence and the due diligence has to be part of the, has to involve a business plan that says, you know, not you're good at making widgets because some people are, but do you have what it takes to run a business to sell them? Do you understand the legal part, the tax part? Where are you going to get your supplies? Are you going to do this alone or is someone to come? So, so one is do your due diligence before you start from the business plan to the accounting. Two is I would think um, you want a mentor, somebody else that has been down your path. Now, in this day and age, as businesses are a little bit different and people are in niches, you may not be able to find someone who does exactly what you do, but there's probably somebody that does. I think you need that to be successful, you need that mentor that says, hey, you know, don't put your hand in the flame, it's going to get burnt. Or, you know, don't order all your inventory until this, or don't do whatever the whatever the sort of three or four principles that, that she or he can impart to you to get you ready. Um, there's that. The third is, uh, is part of your due diligence, but I think it's important to understand, which is, you know, how are you going to eat? And, and you know, how are you going to survive? Uh, how are you going to, you know, in this phase? Now, again, that in part depends where you're coming from. Are you coming from college and you have debt or are you leaving a business where you, have you set money aside? Um, does, does your spouse, does your spouse work? You know, in other words, this could take X and this goes back to your due diligence until you start putting money in your pocket. Do you think that's going to be three months or nine months or 18 months? And until then, how how will you eat? Um, and and then um, it's sort of what I would call the casino rule, which is, you know, I always say to folks going to casino, you better decide before you get in the car to drive to the casino how much money you're willing to lose. Because if you wait until you're inside the casino and there's the excitement and the noise and the music and the cheering and the crowd, you lose your head. And I'd say the same thing for this, which is you need to go into it from the beginning and saying, this is how long I can go without getting paid, or this is how much personal money I can put into it and draw that line. Because it'll be very hard in the heat of the moment when you think you're just one more sale away or one more quarter away, and you've decided you're only going to put in 20000 and then it's twenty two, and then it's 27 and then it's 30 And you could find yourself in a personal hole that you can't get out of. Um, there's some basic, I mean, that, that's sort of the basic, uh, thing. And, and, you know, I start with the overall, take a step back before any of that, which is why are you doing this? You know, what are you really, are you really passionate about something? Are you really good at something? Because like, for example, I like to cook. I think I'm above average cook. I don't know that I should open a restaurant. I don't mean to grossly, 
you know, for simplify it, but I mean, it's, is it that I like cooking and when people come over and join us for dinner, they say, Hey guy, that was really tasty. It's a lot of steps before I ought to rent a storefront in Phoenixville and open up a seafood restaurant. Right. Um, so I think you start with that, but if you, if you have a real passion and you think there's something you're really good at, or you see, you see an opportunity in the market where nobody else is doing this and you say, I know this, I can jump in. Then you get into those next things, you know, the business plan, a mentor and protect yourself. But I, but I think it's great. And some people, you know, I, I would just close on, I mean, some people are just, some people are entrepreneurs. Some people are born entrepreneurs and some people love the excitement and the exhilaration of it. I've got to do, you know, my son wants to produce music. My son wants to be a successful music producer. Uh, if I were 25 and I was sort of living on a business where I had to sell my skills every day and I might go days without a client coming in, that would be rough. But he has a passion for music and he's studied with enough people that are producers that he knows what his business plan should be. He knows the fees he should charge. That's thrilling and exciting. He might make it. He might not. But he goes into it eyes wide open. Um, and I think that's a great thrill. So I, you know, I think if if you have a passion burning inside you to do it and you can think it through and it makes enough sense, then all of us sort of do that, you know, that sort of theoretical piece of paper. You draw the line down the middle, the pros and the cons. If you think the pros outweigh the cons, you, you go for it. And if you do, it's wonderful and rewarding and exciting. And then you also have to know if you didn't, are you still happy you did? And uh, it can be really exciting. And I would just encourage people, if you really have that burning passion inside, to consider it, to consider it, but to do that due diligence so that you go in to make it successful uh, and you take every opportunity you can to make it successful uh, because it can be wonderfully rewarding if you get to do what you love and then to be successful. at. I mean, that's a great joy and a gift that some people get to have. And if you think you can, you should pursue it. I just had one last question. Um, you got a election coming up in November. And um, so speaking to our audience of listeners who are interested in business development, um, I want to give you a chance to share your pitch. Why should we vote for you? For for the last few years, uh, we have seen everything go in the wrong direction. The way I describe it is I feel as though everything is spinning out of control. And I don't claim to have all the answers. And I'm running for Congress. I'm, I'm not running for king. Um, I think we have too many people that have either suffered from not recognizing that things are running out of control or who are so convinced that they're right in their approach, that even though it's failed the first three times, they just want to try it a fourth or fifth or a sixth time because they're bound. it's bound to work out. The pitch I would say, particularly people in the business community, is this. We are going through a time where small businesses are struggling. We had lockdowns, then mandates, then workforce issues, then supply chain issues. Now we're dealing with inflation. It, it's hard to find products. It's hard to get them to market. It's hard to borrow because interest rates are going up. Some of that is caused because elected officials made bad policy decisions. They spent way too much money. They were careless in how it was spent. They paid people not to work. 
which hurt the workforce. We're paying the price. The answer cannot be, as each different group of Americans becomes the next group to suffer from bad decisions and bad policies, that we keep doling out aid. I like to say the true compassion of a society is not measured by how many people get government aid, but by how many people don't need government aid. That's a truly compassionate society. We need to figure a way to get our small businesses solvent and growing without wondering out which new group of people need government aid. We will go broke as a society doing that. We will cause hyperinflation. More importantly, we will sap the American spirit out. So I offer an alternative. We've tried it this way for nearly two years. We're trillions more dollars in debt. Inflation's at an all-time high. Gas, despite the fact that it's coming down, is still almost twice what we were paying. People trying to heat their homes are paying way too much. Stock market's down, interest rates are up. We can change this. One, when you're in a hole, stop digging. We need to stop spending money. Two, we need to get American energy out of the ground. Not because it's, it's a wonderful rah-rah chant. Energy independence is not about winning a prize. Energy independence is about lowering the cost of heating our homes, fueling our cars. It's also putting us in a safer position nationally and internationally. And if America can be the leader in smart fossil fuels, then we can be the leader in green energy because then we can transition to other energies like hydrogen or uh, even nuclear and then solar and wind, but we can do it smartly and on our terms when we can build solar panels here, when we can do it, when we can make sure our grid's strong enough. Right now, what happened is we've spent too much. We've caused too many people that need aid. We've radically changed our energy policy that's harmed our quality of life, made us dependent on others. We can turn this around if we have the willingness to change what's going on in Washington. Because it's my opinion that seeing what went wrong and then spending $740 billion more on an Inflation Reduction Act isn't going to reduce inflation. It's probably going to make it worse. Offering a way to clean energy by telling people there's a $7,500 tax cut to go buy a Tesla doesn't really help a working family in Phoenixville. They're not looking to buy a Tesla, and $7,500 isn't going to make a difference. What we need is to stop spending slow inflation, bring down the costs of energy, bring things under control, make sure that small businesses aren't buried under mandates and regulations. Everything I've outlined is based on common sense. It is different than what we're doing now. Doesn't require new government agencies, doesn't require new government programs, doesn't require new government spending. We can deregulate, we can stop wasteful spending, we can work on get Amer getting American energy out of the ground. Those things along will put a, alone will put us on a trajectory where we need to be. And I'll close with this. I began because everything was spinning out of control, but I did it in part because I have three children. One of the hallmarks of American society for generations has been the sense that the next group would have a chance to do better than us. It's not certain right now that we're in that position, that we can hand it off to the kids in their 20s and that they're going to hand it off to their kids in a position where they can live better economically and have a higher quality of life. I'd like to turn this around so we can go back to that custom and that tradition of believing that we did our best and the next group's in a position to do better than us. Guy, thank you very much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. 
subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production, hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast. <laughs>